Eventually, all things merge into one, and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. Norman McLean. Welcome. Thank you for listening to Warfare Advancement Revisionism, or WAR. My name is Preston Floyd, and I am, and I am as always, your host. So I'm going to go ahead and apologize at the start of this episode. Um, my last episode, when I recorded it initially, um, got corrupted, and that made me very frazzled. And I had to re-record everything, and it was getting late. And I just tried to get it, you know, set and published, and all that. And I then had work in the morning, so I was very frazzled. I wanted to apologize. Um, so I, I left out a couple of points. Nothing. Nothing too major. There is one thing I do want to go over, but um, before I do that, again, I am sorry for the last episode being so rough. I know I trailed off in a couple of places. That was me fighting frustration and sleep as I was um, trying to get, you know, the meat of the episode out to you guys. So I hope that won't happen with this one. Uh, if you're you're hearing this part, um, I think it's safe to assume that everything went okay. So. Um, the key point I missed about that I wanted to kind of emphasize about the, the peoples living in the kind of the Congo uh, River system is that in addition to being hunters and gatherers, the way the San and the Khoi peoples were, they were also fishers. They had access to, of course, the Congo River and all of its tributaries and their tributaries, and fish was an important part of the diet. So in addition to being hunters and gatherers, they were also fishers. Um, and in fact, a couple episodes ago when I mentioned finding the earliest uh, spear points um, from catfish bones, those large river catfish, that is actually happening along the Congo rivers, or the Congo River system. Um, and that faster life is also important to the peoples we will be covering in this episode. And uh, these are the peoples, are the groups of peoples that will, or that have uh, populated West Africa uh, at this point. And some will eventually spread to the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and that includes going uh, west towards the Atlantic and um, covering parts of Africa we've already gotten to. Um, and of course they are also, or some of them are also uh, the ancestors of the peoples who will be enslaved and shipped to the rest of the world by Arabs and Europeans. But those events are still far in the future and we will have to wait for future episodes to get into the specifics of that. So now though we're going to focus on West African peoples at 10,000 BC. Now like the Congo River and its tributaries becoming key features and focuses for the tribes of Central Africa, Western Africa has its own river system around which groups made their lives. This river system is formed around primarily the Niger River. And these systems are separated by the Mandara mountain range and a bunch of uh, plateaus in between the Niger and the Congo. Uh, these mountains served as a barrier and a sieve for large population movements. And again, that is not to say there is no crossing ever, but it is rare. 
Now it's also important to remember that while these groups shared a common ancestor around 100,000 to 80,000 years ago, they had multiplied and spread across the region and started developing their own unique cultures independent of the other human groups and each other. Uh, and these splits probably also happened very early. Um, now this is somewhat of a guess on my part, but my reasoning for believing this is that um, mostly based on geography and location, or I'm sorry, geography, geography and language. Most linguistic information that I've read seems to suggest that if you examine all the areas where language is spoken, the place where there is the most diversity in accents and derivatives usually suggests that the language probably originated there or close to that location or that it's been spoken in that area longer. That's why, of course, in England they have so many different accents compared to you know, other places that English is the primary language. And there are numerous examples of this in other languages, but that's just kind of what I'm most familiar with. <clears throat> so the areas that we're covering is the birthplace of the Niger-Congo language families. And this is a massive family with between, I think it's 1,500 to 1,000 different tongues, um, with around one in 13 people speaking one of these languages worldwide. And as you can probably tell by the number range, there is a debate about the precise amount. Um, there are some arguments that, you know, some of these languages are not actually separate languages, they're just different dialects of others. But um, that's not something we necessarily have to worry about in this episode because, again, at 10,000 years ago, there are, I guess, kind of, I guess, the sub, the main sub families of the entire family. Uh, and to kind of go over those, I want to um, just kind of give a kind of um, overview of them uh, in the Niger Congo branches. It can be divided up into, I guess, three or four main groups, depending on, you know, whatever. And each of those groups has subdivisions. Um, you have the Atlantic Congo, the Mande, and Cordofian. And uh, those are the ones I'm most uh, get, able to get the most information from. Um, and also, the the name Niger uh, Congo is a little uh, misleading because, or Atlantic Congo and Niger Congo too, I guess, if you really think about it. But the reason it's a little misleading is at this point, if it's not spoken around the Congo, that comes later. And again, it's something we will have to get into in depth in a future episode. But uh, the Niger, the three main branches or four, again, depending, are the Atlantic Congo, the Mande, and the Cordofian. Uh, the Atlantic Congo is kind of broken down to the Bino Congo, the Savannas, the Atlantic, um, and then uh, there are languages along the Ivory Coast and the Ghana and then along um, kind of the Volta, Volta arm of the Niger. And Mande is actually interesting. It's spoken in kind of the south of the Sahara, right along the Sahel going towards um, the, uh, the, I guess, kind of the outcropping of Africa into the uh, Atlantic. Uh, and there is some 
there is some debate that Mande is actually a Niger-Congo language. There is thought that it might be its own kind of branch that just happened to incorporate some words just due to closeness with the other Niger languages. Um, and that, again, that's still up for debate. There's not, um, I think that was around the 1950s that they were, had been classified together. But it lacks some, I guess, some, some nouns and morphology um, that really identifies it as a Atlantic Congo languages. And I think they're trying to reconstruct the Proto-Mande and the Proto-Atlantic Congo. And until they do that, they can't really prove one way or another. But I think right now, more linguists than not suggest that Monde is maybe its own thing. And if you look at a map, you can see that they kind of cut, um, I think, fullest speakers from each other. Um, and what I would guess, if they're not related, I would think the Monde people were maybe living a little bit further north than they do today in the actual Sahara during this period when it's not a desert again yet. It's probably more of a gra um, grassland type situation closer to the Sahil that they kind of live in today. Um, but again, that's just a guess on my part, but that would be my assumption. Another kind of language that makes it a little bit harder to understand what's happening with these groups is uh, Cordophian. Um, this is a very widespread language. Um, it's kind of in the uh, southern part of uh, Central Africa, or I'm sorry, the southern part of Central North Africa, basically around Lake Chad. Uh, it's it's spoken um, kind of around there, but it's also way further to the east that I, and I haven't, we haven't covered that area yet um, along uh, some areas in what is today Sudan and South Sudan. And then it has some splotching kind of towards uh, the west in the Atlantic, uh, kind of around people that speak um, Fula or Gur. So this kind of makes it hard to kind of, I guess, track. And then there's also a branch of accordion that shares more similarities with different, a different language group that we'll cover uh, in the future, uh, uh, Nilos, uh, uh, Nilotic languages, um, of course, coming from the, the word for the Nile. Um, so that kind of makes it hard to track as well. So while it's very close to these other languages, it shares more, I believe, vocabulary with the Nilotic. So it makes things even kind of harder to track. But um, so they are also very likely to have been in what is now the Sahara Desert when it was green, uh, but more in the kind of uh, center of it around Chad and further north than there and kind of to the east. But um, I'll, I'll probably go into a little more depth on them in when we when we get closer to the Nilotic speakers. Um, and of course, when we kind of get to where there is more evidence to show them as distinct. At 10,000 BC, 
I mean, this could all still be one language. We don't know. This could be the true proto-Niger-Congo language. Um, or at the very least, it could be just starting to break apart. Um, so it, it's, again, it's, it's kind of rough to tell. Um, but I do think there are some of these people in what is now the Sahara Desert when it's still green. It's very much a grassland. Uh, there would be, you know, seasonal lakes uh, and some smaller rivers that you, of course, are no longer there. They'll be around uh, the Niger River system. Specifically, I think a very important part of that system is going to be the Beno River. It's also known as the Chada, depending on which uh, African languages spoke there. But the Beno is, of course, for the French, who would eventually um, colonize the area. Um, so yeah, we have, I think, at least four or five key groups that, if they haven't emerged in this area yet, will emerge within the next one or two thousand years. Um, and um, we'll get, of course, to these groups a little bit later, you know, when they, when they truly emerge and we have more evidence. Um, but I do kind of want to talk about uh, some of these religious beliefs or what could possibly be like a proto-religious uh, beliefs for these um, kind of subgroups of um, the Niger-Congo languages. I'm going to start with the Monde group or subgroup. Um, now, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot to go through for most of these groups or these subgroups of, of people uh, because they converted to Islam fairly early. I think some as early as, I want to say, the 15th century. And some held out and didn't convert until the 19th century. Uh, and But there are one or two that still practice a traditional uh, West African religion. But uh, of the groups that converted earlier, there are some that have kind of syncretic um, parts of their faith, that their old faith that they carried over. Things like ancestor worship uh, is a very important, uh, specifically I think uh, the Bambara people uh, practice that. Um, then you have things like uh, Tone, which is kind of like a society like a like a fraternity or sorority almost. Now that's probably didn't come till much later than this part, but there may have been some kind of early uh, initiation rituals that were eventually carried over to the Ton in the future. Um, I know that these people also have made very ornate masks, and I think that was important in all of these areas from all the all these people, whether they were. Islamic practitioners or um, the original ethnic religion. Masks are always important and show up a fair amount. There are also have like ritual representations of things like antelope, um, which if you think back to the San, uh, the Aland, which is a kind of South African deer, was very important in their religion. And 
this is also important to uh, some of these ethnic groups um, that uh, lived in West Africa. So it's a different animal, but it is it probably occupies the same place on the food chain. Um, and they actually have a couple different ways they can display this, at least later art. And originally it may have been just the, you know, the one way, uh, but there are sometimes uh, represented either horizontally or vertically. And then there's something that I guess you could consider more of an abstract representation of antelopes. Now to get into specifics on these kind of proto-faiths, um, there isn't a huge amount to go on. Um, we do know that there are some groups that have a creator god, uh, Wuro, that's W-O-R-O, uh, uh, and I think specifically the Bobo and I think the Bwa as well use that name for their god. And I think these are actually, these two groups are distinct ethnic groups. There hasn't been too much intermarriage between them, but they do have like a common share of religious beliefs. So they have a lot of cultural similarities, even if they don't necessarily have a lot of ethnic similarities. Uh, <clears throat> so to these people, uh, God is Wuro. And he is not described or represented by any kind of sculpture or art. Um, now, this could be a later influence from Islam, uh, which, of course, like Judaism, doesn't like to uh, depict God or, in Islam's case, the Prophet Muhammad. Um, but it could also just be a very old belief. Um, it, you know, it. it but he's not given like a form. As far as I can tell, there's no, there's no evidence of him transforming into an animal or different animals like uh, there are among the San. Um, so it is very possible that this is an organic, original belief. Also, uh, Wuro is he is not a, a demiurge. Um, he's he's a different kind of god. I believe the term is Otois. Basically, he is, he, he serves no practical purpose anymore. He, he created the world. He did so perfectly that this is this, the world that we live in is as close to perfect as possible. Uh, but it is a fragile and delicate world. Um, so he, of course, does teach um, not just man, but kind of all of nature. Uh, about how to try to keep this balance. Um, and he is very much a um, very much a belief believer in balances. He, he creates differences between um, the living and the dead, uh, male and female. Um, later, kind of the village or the bush. Um, and then, of course, again later, not at this time, domesticated and wild, both crops and animals. But he also has, um, you know, culture versus nature, uh, safe versus danger, cold versus hot, so on and so forth, those things. So there should be a balance between all of these things. You should commit over much to one or the other. Um, so... Um, 
you know, that that is something that you know we haven't really seen too much of, at least spelled out among the religions we've kind of studied before now. Um, this kind of duality, not between good and evil, but between just order and chaos, or you know, light and dark. There, there isn't really a good or evil per se. It's just the balance that you should try to keep, and that we should hope that the world keeps. Uh, he also has, um, you know, unlike uh, Islam, he he does have. Uh, children he has other gods that he populates not many i think from what i can undertell he just has the two that he's kind of left with along with man after the creation um and those are um sokso and he's kind of a spirit of um of the wild he's a kind of a vital uh, powerful force and then there's uh, quera uh Quire, uh, and he's a spirit that kind of um, he, he's kind of a spirit of punishment, uh, and he uses thunder and lightning as his tools. Um, and uh, there are elements of this story that we can't know because it was explained by a language that was developed by each of these groups, and it was just taught during like a kind of initiation. Uh, and this, I believe, is. Um, Kind of known as Duo, and it's kind of a materialization of Waro, or maybe his, um, maybe a manifestation of him. And Duo is usually revealed to men in the form of um, of a mask. Again, we see the importance of masks in in West Africa. Uh, it was uh, initially these were, of course, probably made with leaves and fibers, with like you know some carved wood. Um, but eventually these do, you know, get more elaborate and probably made with a little bit more diversity of materials. And these are usually kept kind of um, in shrines today. Of course, in the past, they may not have um, been associated with uh, shrines. They probably didn't have, um, you know, nailed down locations, although there may have been locations that they would go to for specific religious ceremonies. We're not sure. Uh, another thing I do want to kind of go back to, uh, the use of masks. Um, they're mostly religious, at least probably at this early stage, but eventually they're not used just for religion, and they're not necessarily used to just depict uh, Duo. They're also used to kind of, uh, you know, predict uh, or depict animals or just like um, maybe a specific idea. Uh, but regardless, the use of masks, they do expand. And of course, um, they use begin using different types of wood, painting, things like that. And there are different types of masks. There are different words that are used to describe masks. Um, now, as for the bois, I did misspeak a little bit earlier. They have a similar name to God, um, or at least the concept of duo, uh, and also to Woro. Woro and Duo are not that far apart, but the, the Wai use the term Do, um, but it's 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 also kind of an intermediary. Yeah, intermediary. Forgive me, an intermediary between God and the people. And there is some conjecture that the Bois adopted some other traditions from the Bobo. 
uh, the Bois are considered to be very um, quick to adapt to institutions from some of their neighbors if they feel like there is a benefit to them or from the way of life they're adapting or the specific as uh, aspect they're adapting. Um, but that's, again, that's somewhat conjecture. Uh, but they did have their own their own faith and their own thing that they just kind of maybe inter um, integrated some aspects of uh, the Boba religion. But essentially, the Bois believed that the world was created by a god named Dafini or Dabwini, and he abandoned man and left the earth when he was wounded. Um, I think there were a couple of stories I read. One had that he was wounded by um, an arrow. Uh, another, another time he was wounded by a woman pounding a millet with, a, with her pestle, which is probably a later story because, again, they're not pounding out millet other than, at least not like in a, in a mill, like the way you would think of uh, today. Although I guess it is possible they were maybe, you know, like smashing up something to better eat or making a medicine. Regardless, the there are a couple different versions of that. But he didn't want to leave mankind alone, so he, he left a representative behind as an intermarry between man and nature. And this is uh, his son, Duke. Now, Du is um, also, Du is androgynous. He is both male and female. I know it's odd to call him he if he's both, but usually he's represented as a male, but he could, I believe, become female if he wished. And he represents uh, kind of the wild, the wilderness, and it's, it's, you know, it's power. And they still depend on the wilderness and the bush for game and food. Um, and he shows himself like he's the source of plant life and power and he gives fruit as well as animals. So again, you know, the feminine aspect, you know, producing fruit, wheat, that shows up in a lot of religions, the rest of the world, especially when agricultural comes around. So this might be an adaptation that comes along later, but Again, we don't know for sure. And he, you know, he's very interested in all ceremonies that kind of ensure rebirth and renewal. And that was a cut for those sirens. They were getting very loud and they went on for quite a while. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, Doe is interested in uh, rebirth, renewal, um, and he is involved in all of those ceremonies. And, of course, uh, like... Uh, the Bois also use different masks, leaves, uh, fibers, things like that to make the mask. And then, of course, later they add wood. Um, so, again, West Africa, masks are very important in religious traditions. And, of course, that spreads to other forms of entertainment and uh, kind of expression as well. And that's not limited to the Bois and the Bois. That, that's spread all over. And it's not just, I believe, Mande people here. I believe other uh, groups uh, among the Niger-Congo language families do that as well. So I doubt we'll ever figure out where the use of masks came from initially, um, but it is extremely popular and it is widespread. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a kind of the Monde uh, groups and um, maybe what they're working with in terms of religion. And again. Um, 
these people now are probably a little bit more southerly, in my opinion, than where they were at 10,000 BC. Um, but that being said, uh, there are some small river systems in the area, and um, even the ones in what is now the Sahara Desert, uh, even if they've dried up, um, there were they were there at the time that uh, the Mande or the Proto Mande were living in the area. So these people were mostly hunter gatherers, although it wouldn't surprise me if they had some level of fishing skill. Um, but I do think it's more likely to say that uh, the people we'll be covering in the next episode are better and more prolific fishers at this point in time, at 10,000 BC. Yeah, so I think that's uh, kind of a good place to call this episode. Uh, we are going to come back to the West African peoples next week, and I'll cover the other kind of big branches of the Niger-Congo uh, group, we'll call it. Um, I'll try to touch on the Cordovians, even though, again, they may not necessarily be part of this group, at least yet. Um, I'll try to cover those groups what I can, and I hope to go ahead and get the, um, the, uh, the other groups taken care of as well. And then after that, we'll, of course, move to um, the Horn of Africa and then Northern Africa. And then uh, we'll finish up 10,000 BC in Africa, and we'll begin covering kind of the rest of the world as best we can. And then we'll progress further down the timeline. I do thank everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed, and I hope this episode turns out a lot better than the last one. Uh, again, I do apologize for last week and it being a little shoddy. So uh, I'd like to say if you have any feedback, please reach out to me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can also direct message me on uh, the podcast's Twitter account, uh, which I'll include a link to in the description of the episode. But I hope everyone has a good day, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Goodbye.